Almighty God, thank you for this class, for the opportunity to be together in your name. We are so grateful for your wisdom and your word that comes to us through our conversation, through our study. We thank you for the Bible. It's a, it, it's a, a, a gift that, that we often underestimate, and you know we have trouble reading it. We have trouble remembering to read it. We thank you that studying it brings us together so that we can be a family of faith, caring for one another, and in that spirit, we ask your blessing upon those who are going to be traveling, uh, band or, or drama club trips, friends and family traveling to see other friends and family, travelers to Israel. We pray for all of them and the other travelers we don't know of, but you do. We pray, Lord, for Kennedy and her, her healing and for her uh, diagnosis. We pray also for the unnamed things that are part of our circle tonight as we gather in your name and pray for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Okay. My recorder's making a tick, tick, tick sound, and I want it to stop. There, perfect. Okay. So tonight... I want us to look at Romans 12, and I th or uh, a 10, rather, and I think... It says Romans 11. It's less than 10, Romans 11, sorry. Well, it had to be something along those lines. Um, I like my new contacts, but they effectively make me like this. I can read the words just fine if I hold the book way out here. When I wear my glasses, I can hold it right up here, but anyway. They've heard me fumble through the readings with my glasses on, so what's the difference, right? It's going to be a mess either way. So, what I thought we would do, yes? You could assign a reader. We're going to do that, actually. <laughs> You're ahead of me on that. I thought we would just read Romans 10, and then we've got a list of... Eleven. <laughs> she loves to correct, doesn't she? My buddy there. Yeah, she's. You know, I love how you people sit right up here by me, so that you can make sure I don't get anything wrong. Yeah. So, so, uh, Romans eleven. We'll read it, and then we got some questions to answer. And I think what you'll realize is is that the Apostle Paul is answering a lot of the questions about. What happens to Jews and Israel and why? But I also want you to see something that I pointed out to you last week. I was talking about a professor I had who uh, really, you know, kind of made his reputation doing his doctoral thesis on how he believed that Paul's primary purpose in doing his ministry of evangelism to the Gentiles was so that he could win the hearts of the Israelites. So after you listen to chapter 11, listen to it and see what you think about whether or not, what Paul's real motives are. And just so you know, there's nothing wrong with the outcome. It, if We all win because he did what he did. So it's not like there's a, a, a some dramatic theological uh, 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 undermining that's going to, the, the, the debate is, is what was his primary motive? And that really is not something that matters to us about our salvation, but it's fun to, to kind of see if you can get inside Paul's head, which is what we're trying to do. So could we have some readers? Uh, 
I would like to read. All right. How about you read us through to uh, verse 4, and then somebody can pick it up at verse 5 and take us to verse uh, 8. Right now? Anytime. Okay. Nice and loud. To 4? Read us to 4. Romans chapter 11, verse 1 through 4. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and take down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. All right. Good job. And who's taking us from there? I'll read five through eight. All right. Thank you. Even so, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace there is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then there is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. Okay. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. But the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God had given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that, which, eyes they, that they should, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. Okay. So, who would like to take us from verse nine on to verse twelve? All right. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will, will their fullness bring? All right. And anybody want to take us down to, uh, say, verse 21? <clears throat> yes. I All right. Go right ahead. I am talking to you, Gentiles. And as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the recon reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. 
If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid, for... If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. All right, and who would take us from there down to uh, verse uh, 31. Don't be bashful. Okay, okay. Elaine. Sorry. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles come to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness, and this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loved because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gift and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels. And God's mercy has come to you, so that they too will share in God's mercy. Is that what you said, Ms. Ross? Sounds good to me. <laughs> Ken, you want to take us home? Sure. It's more 33. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond, beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been, been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All right. Thanks for all the readers. And uh, so look at your, your study guide, and let's consider some of these questions. But... The question that's not there that I'll start with is, so now what do you think about my professor's argument? Do you see why he thought that it was pretty reasonable to think that 
Paul was motivated by his love for his people and his desire to save Israel. Can you hear it in this? Yeah. I'm just curious, have you ever thought about that possibility? Have you ever given that any consideration until now that, that maybe he wasn't just the missionary to the Gentiles, but he was actually, you know, trying to sort of come in the back door to save the Jews? Thoughts? Yeah, it totally makes sense because whoever, whatever place the person is born in, you know, like, you know, um, well, ethnocentrism, uh, um, you know, the belief that their own country is actually the best one and stuff, you know, and the patriotism and stuff, and the reasons people would fight a war for a country instead of just their own, just to send up themselves and, and decide not to fight, you know. Mm -hmm. um, he, he would definitely have take interest in his own land, people from his own land he's most familiar with, and his own family, and the people, his own tribe, and so um, his own people. So, you know, um, of course he's going to really, is it, or is he really from, is Paul from those people, or they mm -hmm. said there he was, so. Um, Does anybody remember what he said about himself, where he came from? Tribe of Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin. So, yeah, he's he's definitely one of them. I don't know much about the Bible. No, that's okay. That. You're yeah. doing great. I'm, I mean, just, that was one of the things he says is, hey, these are my people. In fact, I was born in the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, that's. That's kind of like saying I'm an American and I was born in Jasper, Indiana. You know, there's there's a very specific story about where you're from and why that matters to you. You know, so it goes along yeah. with what you said. It's a lot of people that matters to them. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not where you're from, it's where you're going. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, Paul would, would seem to be saying that he has found what they've been looking for, but they haven't figured out that this is what they're looking for. And so, you know, he, he's wanting to help them. Well, look at, look, at, look at the questions then. What proof does Paul give in verse 1 of his conclusion that God hasn't rejected Israel? That God did not reject Israel? He's one of them and God hasn't rejected him. There you go. Yep. Because, he, you know, saying he's a descendant of Abraham isn't saying anything. That's right. That's right. We discussed obviously previously is saying that you know we're all descendants of Abraham. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, and I mean, can you see how that ties into what we've talked about up to this point? That that um, you can't really justify hatred towards the Jews based on the fact that some of them rejected Jesus and even you know helped to coordinate his death. Uh, you can't really base it on some universal rejection on the part of God toward the people of Israel because Paul says, I'm a people of Israel and God saved me. You know, So it has more to do with your faith in Christ than it does your nationality or your, your religious system of your birth. And he thought he was perfectly justified with what he was doing before. Yeah. He thought that's what has to be done. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, how's that old saying go? And I'm really sure I'm getting this wrong, but basically people can be very sincere, but they can be sincerely wrong, you know, and and that happens all the time. So you can't just base it on a person's sincerity. Sometimes you got you to gotta see the proof, and some people can be very blind to 
I mean, that happens all the time, and there's just blind devotion to all kinds of things. But oh, yeah. in this case, so, so what evidence does he offer in support of the conclusion in verses 2 to 4? Did Elijah know of the 7,000-person remnant? What was the spiritual climate of that day? And if during Israel's darkness, darkest spiritual time, 7,000 remain, what does that tell us is likely about other times in their history? So it's a big question, but break it down into its parts. Well, well, God, well Father might have given him a, um, you know, a vision of it or a dream of it. He might have let him know that roughly that the Mount Romains, or mm -hmm. that at least that Mount, Mount Romains. So, um, it would there be you no, know, would there be a, um, would there be like a census or over any of the, I mean, Jew, Jewish people? Because, well, like maybe there was because they were being, is were there like forces eradicating them at the time, trying to jet, do genocide on them, and so they would keep track of how many there were, so that they could thereby be able to um, control them more and, um, um, you know, keep them under wraps, you know, and keep mm -hmm. them from, you know, so was it or... I, you know, I like the way you're thinking this through, and I could I could zero in on a conclusion in much the same way. But we don't the, know. The times that Elijah was living in were times when there were enemies of the true believers. Because some of, a lot of times the enemies are within, and... And this is a little side note, but if there's one thing I can tell you will definitely happen in times of persecution, it will be that the persecution always starts within the body of believers. It, it's like, in other words, right now in the life of the church universal, there are all these denominational factions lining up against each other over various political perspectives. Wow. And whoever wields a little more authority than the other group will, in effect, be persecuting the ones who are subject to their authority. There'll be the consensus. You know, and so even though persecution doesn't always manifest right away in the form of violence, in physical violence, persecution almost always starts within the church or within the Judaism in the case of the Old Testament. There, there were people like Ahab and Jezebel who were part of the family, but they were the enemy. You know, and so um, it's very likely that Elijah was aware of the number of people in general that he could count on, you know, that got it. I mean, I got a, um, I had to fill out a big document today that, that was related to something George was doing. You know, the denomination asked me to fill out certain papers every year and and they made me fill out a document I didn't really feel like filling out, but, you know, they said, well, we want you to do it anyway. So, you know, being, being nice and compliant and, you know, enjoying my job, I thought I'd just go ahead and <laughs> do it, what they asked. And one of the questions they ask is, how many, uh, what percentage of your congregation do you think understands what it means to be a missional church? So they wanted me to give a percentage of how many of you guys understand what it means to be a missional church 51 so everybody and and don't be embarrassed don't be embarrassed but just for the sake of discussion everybody who's pretty sure you know what missional church means raise your hand yeah, I like this I like this okay 
Everybody who's pretty sure you don't have any idea at all what missional church means. That they have a mission? And Yeah. And everybody who didn't answer, raise your hands. <laughs> all right. I said 70%. If I looked at this table as a microcosm, I was close. Because I figured about 70%. What does missional church mean? Well, we could go into a long explanation, but you're actually right. It's the church that's actually on a mission. I mean, if you think about it, churches, and, and I want to get back to our study, but just, just to kind of illustrate the point, a church that's on a mission is actually trying to accomplish something. It's trying to go somewhere. It's yeah. trying to reach a goal. Whereas a church that just exists for its own entertainment and its members just serve themselves and each other, that, well, that's a club. That's not a church. So missional church, in the simplest definition, means we have a vision and a clear mission to fulfill the vision. What is our vision statement here at Shiloh? Anybody know it? Some variation of being vital to the well-being of the community, right? We just decided a few years ago that we didn't want the church to, to disappear and no one care. And the quickest way for a church to disappear and no one in the community care is because we don't do anything that makes any difference to the community. So with that in mind, we made it our mission to be disciples, seek disciples, and then change our community and our world. And that's it. So we're a church on a mission. We're missional. So now it should be 100%, right? Now if I asked you, everybody know what it means to be a missional church? You'd all raise your hands. Yes, I understand. It's really that simple. Now, I know people who give you longer and windier answers, and, and Mike's probably thinking mine was pretty long and windy, but quite honestly, the basic answer is, is that your church has a purpose. It doesn't just exist. So there you go. We're a church with a purpose, and we're trying to fulfill that purpose even now by studying God's Word and being disciples. This is the being disciples part, because we can't really effectively disciple others and seek others to be disciples if we don't know what we're talking about. And so this is why we come to be fed, in order that we might be better equipped to reach others with the truth of Christ's love and God's salvation through Christ. So how does he know he's got about 7,000? Kind of the same way. He says, you know, I can kind of see who's with me. I got a pretty good idea who's with me. That's one way we could look at it. Um, and what's the whole implication that Paul's driving at by saying that? Um, what do you hear him saying about his times and even future times? And anybody who's done a little work in Revelation, you get bonus points for telling me the correlation between the future and, and the present when it regards Jews. What's he saying about the Jews? Seven tribes, seven tribes remaining, or he's saying, "No, nah, I'm, I'm. It's really what I'm looking for is a much simpler answer." He's saying there'll be people who get it. Sorry, that no, no, no. You're okay. I'm just. I, I wasn't really clear on what I was shooting for here. But what do I hear Paul saying? I hear him saying there, there'll be those who get it. You know that that the mere fact that there are Jews in the world at any given time who are absolutely going to reject Christ unconditionally, never hear what is being said about him, but there are just as likely to be people who will get it. So why should we tell them? Because we don't know who's going to get it. That's a little bit like Calvinism. Does anybody know uh, the, most, the most significant thing that Calvinists, which is our Presbyterian brethren, uh, what's the most what best known uh, doctrinal thing about the Calvinists? Predestination. 
You probably knew it, but I just thought I'd save you a little trouble. Predestination, what's that? Calvin believed, John Calvin is, is kind of like our John Wesley is to the Methodist Church, and John mm -hmm. Calvin believed that the Bible makes explicit references to the fact that some people are elect, that, oh. that, that people who are meant to get the gospel and accept the good news and, and be saved by God's grace, oh, the that it's already been determined. The 144,000? No, that's a different story. Oh, sorry. No, it's all right. Cal <laughs> Calvin believed, and thus most Presbyterians who actually practice their faith, you know, because how it is with everybody. How many oh. of you know that much about what Wesley taught us, you know? Pastor, did you remember to turn on the I did. recorder? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, because mm -hmm. you didn't say anything about it. Uh, I just decided so, to, so to surprise let you. Let me guess something, sir. So the other ones, um, the Calvinists, they all believe that they are the, of, the, of the elect, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, upper crust of the, Calvinist, the rationale right? is, is that everyone at this table is among the elect because everyone at this table believes that Jesus is the source of your salvation. And oh. the fact that some people will not accept that and will not, you know, will never hear that news or ever get, they, the Calvinists believe that that was just how it's always meant to be, that God already knew some were foreordained not to be saved and not to get, and where it falls apart for me and probably for most of us at the table is, is well, that's sort of saying that God has already damned a certain percentage of the population yeah. and they have no hope. No, he loves us all. On the other hand, it can be argued, just like Paul's saying right here, because all, you know, because remember that the primary reason we study scripture is not so we can be Bible scholars like Pastor Dan, right? The reason we study scripture is so that we can know God. That, that it's God writing love letters to us about God's self. It's God trying to tell us who God is and how we can know God. And what you do when you study the Bible long enough is you begin to get a sense of God's personality where you can say things about God pretty confidently without necessarily quoting a specific scripture. So how many of us believe, just based on what we've learned as we've grown up in the church, how many of us believe that God would probably not preordain the damnation of certain people? Most of us can't. We don't really we, believe we don't that. Believe it. I don't know. Not right. Really we don't we know. don't believe that that's Cause, true. Because if you if you believe that, you believe there is no reason for remission at all. Well, and and it says something about God that we just can't believe is true. Right. We we because, find it because he's he, he's he's pure. So he's he's pure good. He, he's all wise, all knowing. So. He cares, and he's all-loving, so he wouldn't do stupid things like that. So we would do stupid things like that. God is infinitely wise, infinitely mm -hmm. old, so he's, he, he, he's most intelligent and so most powerful, so we are piddly next to him, and so we would make the assumptions about people and condemn them, but he wouldn't. Um, uh, he wouldn't have been be born at all yeah. to, to be condemned, so ever. So, um, so if... He would want the best for us, the very best for us. If God doesn't foreordain, doesn't determine that some are going to be saved and some are not, if, if that's not how God operates, then the logical conclusion, bringing us back to this passage from Romans, the logical conclusion is, is God does know that some people are going to get it and some people aren't. You know, believe it or not, I'm not God, but I can say that confidently every Sunday when I get up in the pulpit. Some of the people are going, to, they're going to be with me from the beginning of the message to the end. They're going to understand, and they're going to get it, and some aren't going to get it. Some, some are going to thank me for a great sermon, go home, and completely forget about it. 
Doesn't mean they're condemned. Doesn't mean anything about their character. It just means that it just kind of went in one ear and out the other. And that's just the way it is with a lot of things. You could see that where you work. You can teach somebody an important skill. You can tell them something they really need to know, like make sure you shut the door and turn off the lights or whatever, right? You can tell them that, and then they just don't get it. And that's because some people just don't get it. Yes? Pastor Dan, when we pray before we leave, can we pray for that, that people who aren't getting it would get it? Yeah, we can pray for that. George, you put that in their prayer, okay? <laughs> Darn it! <laughs> See, George is in charge of the closing prayer, so, you know, I, I'm saying yes to everything because he has to do it. I, I often wonder how, mu how much influence God would put on because, you know, God won't influence any anyone to be fast or free will, so, yeah. you know, so, which is, like, you know, so, you know, um, so, my God, you know, for some people I like this, I'm, you know, like uh, you know, if I could, you know, I I can pray a whole bunch about everything, yeah. but but you know, I can't, you know, you know, so certain things. If I pray, I feel bad. These my yeah. you know, because uh, it's been so free will. So, you know. well, I'm going to bring us back on topic because we haven't strayed that far. But the more important thing that we want to look at tonight, because it's part of our theme of understanding Israel and Islam, is what Paul's trying to tell us is is that if God doesn't hang on to Israel and does not maintain the covenant with Israel for any other reason. He maintains it because some are going to get it. Because some are going to be saved. Just like Ron. Uh, Ron. I don't know where that came from. Paul. <laughs> talking about Ron a lot today because he wasn't here. And, you know, we always talk about the employee who's not here behind their back. That's not true. Recording. <laughs> I have no idea why I had a brain slip. It just happens. I slip gears because the clutch is getting old. That's what it is, right, Char uh, Larry? I almost called you Charlie, see? <laughs> Do you hear the gears grinding in my head? <laughs> All right, we better get to the questions before I go completely off the rails. So name some of those among the remnant during Paul's time. What was the response of the majority of, of Israel? And is there a remnant now, do you think? Do you think any of the people that were, I, this is a little bit of a trick question in my opinion, because we know there were plenty of Jews who became Christians because that's where the church was born. The first church was the church of Jerusalem, right? So can we agree that there are lots of Jews who became Christians? Mm -hmm. um, can you name a few prominent Jews who became Christians? Come on, trick question, it's easy. The apostles. Thank you, Ken. I could tell by the look on your face that you saw where I was going with this. It was just, it was so easy, right? You know, all of them were Jews, and then they became Christians. They were the first Christians. You know who the first Christian was? This is not a trick question, but most people never think about this. You know who the very first Christian was? Mary. Mary. That's right. The minute she said yes to Gabriel, yes, I'll. I'll be. I'll play my part in God's plan. She was the first Christian. What will say, John? Just because. Well, you know, he was doing you know flips and belly flops in his mama's womb while Jesus was in town. So, so to speak. <laughs> That's my twisted version of that story. You know, the Magnificat just got demagnified by me. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture is Mary's Magnificat. It's absolutely gorgeous. Just to read it out loud, and if you've ever heard it sung, 
My soul doth magnify the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Absolutely beautiful. There's only one reason I want to go to Enkarim and see the place where Mary met Elizabeth, so-called, you know, because a lot of that stuff is where they say it happened, but, you know, couple thousand years of history has happened too so but it's just so we can read that passage out loud in the place we think it happened that that's just a good reason to go there but otherwise you know so do you think there's a remnant now have you ever heard of a messianic jew yeah yeah that's kind of a, a, a i don't know why it makes a difference because I've known Messianic Jews, and you know what they are? They're Christians. I mean, you know, but they haven't lost sight of their Judaism. And if there's anything that I would like to be, if I could have, like, the perfect Christianity, is that would be a really good, like, Messianic Jew myself. Just meaning that I would have the same grasp of the complete history of Israel that a Jew is raised with so that I'm interpreting Christ through the Jewish story because that's really how it went down. So when somebody says they're Messianic Jew, that's really just an easy way to say that means they're a Jew who converted to being a Christian. But yeah, and they're all over the place and they have churches and congregations. In fact, I'm working on arrangements for our group to go to a Messianic church in Israel for, for worship. And it's basically going to be Jews and Arabs and Israelite people and Arabs and so forth who are Christians and worshiping together in one place. That's pretty cool because that's like the last thing that we know in America about the Middle East is that Christians and Arabs and uh, Israelis actually become Christians and worship together and you know, do things for a common good, and because all we ever hear about is the fighting and the violence, because you know that that sells more advertising. Well, I have a question on that. Uh, do you think they use the Bible, or do they have their own thing they work from? Well, people who are raised in Judaism usually are trained to read Hebrew, and so they very likely use their Hebrew Bible, which is the Old Testament, basically. And there's a few minor variations in the ordering of books, but it's essentially the exact same thing we have in our Old Testament. And so they would likely have Hebrew uh, translations of the New Testament. So they might carry two books. But that's about the only difference. And that's like even in, you know, Louisville has lots of Jews. It's a, it's a, people don't realize Louisville, Kentucky is a very big Jewish community. Cincinnati's a big Jewish community, and they've got a really big uh, rabbinical school there. And a lot of people don't realize that, but, you know, because we just tend to think it's places like Chicago, New York, you know, and L.A. and whatever, but there are lots of Jews in Evansville. And, and um, in Indiana, too. Yeah. So wherever you find Jews, you're going to find Messianic Jews, because this passage is absolutely true, that there will be those who get it. And so why does God keep the covenant with them? Because people will get it. Pastor Dan, have you ever oh, been no, to no, a no. Last Supper? Um, we had twice at North of the Church. Mm -hmm. The Seder meal? Supper, yes. Yeah. All pointing toward the coming of Christ. Yeah, in fact, my, my wife and my daughter told me just the other day that I ought to see if I can arrange for us to have a Seder meal here. Yeah. Uh, you've probably done it here before, but... You know, every few years it's a really cool thing to do. And it's really great if you get a Messianic Jew to come and explain it to you. 
because okay. they'll show you how the whole Seder pre points directly to the Messiah. That's what the Seder meal is, the meal before. It's the, the it's basically the Passover, the Passover meal. meal. Yeah, it's it's the Passover yeah. meal, and it has certain it's rituals seven, that go seven, with seven, it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, somebody who has, has not answered a question yet tonight, somebody who has not yet answered a question, <laughs> what is grace, according to the Apostle Paul? No, my version of it's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Any other ways you would express that? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how does God's grace manifest itself, or be? how does it make itself real? Don't overthink it. What's Paul telling us? It's what Jesus gives us. It's what Jesus gives us. Accepting Christ is to receive God's grace. Accepting Christ is receiving God's grace or accepting God's grace. So what is he saying about the Jews who get it? They're not being punished because they're Jewish. They're not being punished at all. They're actually being invited to receive God's grace just like everybody else. So God's grace is universal, right? It means that God has grace for everybody. That God will give you whatever God wants to give you if you'll just accept it. Um. There's an old analogy that I used years ago when I was being trained in something called evangelism explosion. But, um, you know, basically it's like if I bring you over to my house and throw a big party and I invite you over and I put your coat on the bed and, and I feed you all kinds of things that my wife and I have prepared for you and, and I send you home with a gift and everything and then right before you go, you get out your checkbook and you try to write me a check for it. You kind of missed the point, right? If you write me a check, if you're trying to write me a check and pay me for the evening I just gave you, then you have missed the point of what I was trying to do, which was to simply show you kindness and hospitality and and, and entertain and and just and to share your company. I just wanted you around for a while because it makes me happy to have you over to the house and celebrate with me. And so the way we look at God's grace is that God gives it because God wants you. He wants to have you over for a visit for all eternity. He wants you to come over to the house and receive all the blessings, you know, and and he's going to actually hang your coat up in the closet because that says you're going to stay a while. See, we throw your coat on the bed because we want you to go away later. (laughs) Isn't that right? (laughs) If I put it in the closet, you might never go away. (laughs) See, so God's going to hang your coat up. (laughs) But then you don't write a check for that, do you? You know? And so that's the idea of grace. Um, so what does it mean that the rest were hardened? Or who does, uh, who does those refer to in verse 7? Who, who are the hard-hearted? Those that didn't repent. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. isn't that what Elijah was all about? So why don't people repent? Because they're selfish and they don't realize that they need to do it that much. Yeah. What else? I think George is trying to say something. Oh, I just think because they're short-sighted, mm-hmm. um, they, they either think that um, you know they've got plenty of time to do it later, and so they can go ahead and live their life the way they want to live it right now. No. And you know that, that they'll get you know they'll have time mm-hmm. right before the end. Yeah. George is kind of like that statement, I think. 
Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody don't wants to go to hell. Yeah. 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 Because they're scared. They're scared, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, they basically just don't know how to. Some of the people, themselves. yeah, some of the people that rejected Jesus when he was alive and presenting himself as the Messiah, rejected him because they were afraid of the implications if this was true. You know, what happened to everybody who chose to follow him? What is the general pattern from that part of your Bible? They pretty much gave up everything and followed him. You know, Especially Matthew. Yeah, and, and so part of the problem with accepting Christ is, is that you have to also accept that by accepting him, you're go never going to be the same again. You, when, when you accept Christ as your Savior and you follow him as your Lord, you're owning the fact that that will require you to never be the same again. And one of the things that absolutely blows my mind, and again, I don't mean anybody in particular, but it's always boggled my mind that so many people can go to church all their lives, and they've in effect accepted Christ in a sort of intellectual ascent, but they haven't accepted him in their heart because it would cause them to be different than they are. And you can tell by the fact that they're not any different from anybody else you know. You can tell because they don't really do or say anything that's extraordinarily different from what you might hear at Walmart. And that sort of tells you that, and, and again, no one's, to, it's no condemnation, man. I'm the same way. There are plenty of times in my life that people would say, you're a pastor? Seriously? Because I don't do anything that really makes them think of me as a pastor. Sometimes I do that because I just kind of like to not be a pastor sometimes. You know, I just like to be a regular guy and, and not have somebody expect too much from me. But, you know, that's the problem. When you say yes to certain things where God is concerned, you have to say yes to a whole new lifestyle. And there's no, there's no way around it. And, and I think people instinctively know that, don't they? They just kind of know that saying yes to the Lord is going to require a big change in your life. And, and the thing is, is it may not change the way you do anything over a period of days or weeks or even years, but but it'll change the way you think almost immediately. You know, it'll just change the decisions you make. And the, ch and the decisions you make, having been changed, will begin to make major changes in your life. You know, so, so you're, you're, not, you're, you're not, you know, some people might need to immediately, after accepting Christ, they might in immediately give up drinking or drugs or run them with a dangerous crowd or something like that. But a lot of us, we accept Christ, and, and then it, it's just we're really allowing him to change the way we interpret the world, and that changes the way we decide and how we decide what's important. You know, a week ago, I was thinking that when I had enough money, I was going to buy a new bass boat, and then I became a Jesus follower, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, when I have enough money for a bass boat, I'll also have enough money to go on that mission trip. You know, and suddenly those little decisions start changing your whole life because you shifted your priorities. And that's what people, I think, know instinctively that prevents them from following Christ, is that they're not ready to see where it goes. You know, they, they don't like the idea of heading towards an unknown. So it's easier to put money in your 401k, work till you're 65 or so, and retire because you can see that coming. You can anticipate that. And, you know, um, I, don't get, I don't blame anybody, but a lot of people couldn't accept the Jesus, uh, the, the Christ that they were being presented in those days because he didn't fit the part. He didn't 
he didn't look like he was going to deliver. But I, I will argue that had he come to be a military leader who was going to lead a coup, most of the people who are afraid to follow him as a peaceful leader would have been just as afraid to follow him as a military leader. Because the outcome's still the same. If you back Jesus, it's going to cost you something, right? If he'd been a military commander who was leaving uh, Galilee at some point with his army to take over Israel and Jerusalem and, and kick out the Romans, if that's what he was going to do, you'd have still had to got behind him, and it probably would have cost you everything you owned, and it probably would have cost you your life. So do you think the people who reject him really reject him on, on the loose grounds, or do you think they reject him because it's ultimately about just being afraid to do something you don't really want to do? Or maybe you feel like you can't even do it. Self-confidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, the people were told that a superior a Savior was coming. King Nero was mentioned at one point. And the people that were told about King Solomon knew the, how much gold he had and his what he had attained and everything. When Christ come in and riding a donkey, I think this guy is going to be yep. far superior than you know. They equated it, I think, to maybe more terrorist. Yep. Yep. No, you're right. I mean, I think most of us, I can look around the room and see people who all have a pretty good general knowledge of Scripture, and you know that they expected the Savior, the Messiah, to be someone other than who he turned out to be. But take it a little further and just imagine, you know, what if it isn't just that? It's also that he, uh, if he arrives, you have to deal with that. I mean, think about it. Even now, there are people who are awaiting the coming of the Messiah. They're Jewish. They believe the Messiah is coming. They're part of the covenant that God made with Abraham and Moses. They are part of that whole uh, expectation. But when he shows up, it means life is going to change forever. You know, people, people can argue all the time about whether Jesus was the kind of Messiah they were looking for. But at the end of the day, when the Messiah comes, you have to deal with that. You know, you don't have any choice. You you got to you have to deal with it. And if you reject him, then you get to keep what seems comfortable to you now, but you lose everything else for all eternity. If you accept him, you may lose the comfort that you think you have now, which he says is here today and gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, and didn't didn't Jesus give us a, a a really good description of who he is real early in his ministry? I mean, you started in on it uh, on Sunday with the Beatitudes. Right. But wasn't that his, you know, first major production was yes. the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Yeah. This is who I am. Yep. This is a, this is a description of what I'm about. And, and some of the people that listened there got it. Some people said, boy, I don't know. And some of them said, nope, not going to happen. And they were the ones that went back to Jerusalem and started working to get rid of him. Yeah, yeah, he's just another loose cannon, guys. We're going to have to deal with him like we did all the others, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump down a little bit here. Um, 
see. Explain the phrase, stumble so as to fall. What is their transgression, and how did the Jews' transgression result in salvation for the Gentiles? So remember, this is what we opened with, is do you see the professor's argument? Does, does the saving of the Gentiles, is that, what is Paul saying precipitated that? What, what caused the Gentiles to be the ones that he decided to focus, focus all his energy on? If he focuses all of his energy on the Gentiles, then the Jewish people won't feel insulted and won't feel like they're they're actually being um, targeted with um, information, and thereby he can just reach them real good too, and the Gentiles will get it too, and it'll spread real wide, and mm-hmm. and um, then all of a sudden the Gentiles can become, you know, um, by by being circumcised, by they can become. You know, they can become, well, you know, they can become Christian. So, yeah, I mean, they're basically what they did, the, the way he's describing the stumbling or the transgression of the Jews is that they rejected Jesus. That's really it. It's just, it, it's just, he's saying their transgression is, is that he stood right in front of them, told them who he was, proved who he was, and they just rejected him. And so the way Paul's trying to explain it is, is that, it forced, and, and I think what he's describing is Paul's describing his own, that's a cool ringtone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, he's describing his own conversion, if you think about it. He's, he's describing, he, what, he's, what I think when I read this is, is that he's talking about how he had to get his mind wrapped around the fact that this message wasn't exclusively for the Jews. That that was one of the first things he had to overcome is, okay, now I believe he's the Messiah, but how is it that this Messiah is as much of a Messiah to the Gentile world as he is to the Jewish world, you know? And he had to wrap his mind around that, and he's explaining here, I, I take it that he's saying that, that Judaism essentially rejected Jesus outright and it doesn't mean every single Jew there was a remnant that did accept him but he's saying that that the the sort of institutional Judaism said nope not him I mean to put it in perspective Judaism in the days of the temple was as central as the Vatican is now you know so Jerusalem is was was the home of Judaism in those days and the temple was like the Vatican so what, what he's saying, in effect, is, is that the reason the Gentiles were invited to get the message is because the home office of Judaism rejected Jesus. That, that's what he's saying. That's the way I interpret it, anyway. Does anybody agree or disagree? Or <clears throat> hoping I'll just move on. Hey, my Bible study part says Paul was appointed as a mission to the Gentiles. He, was, um, he reminded his Jewish brothers of this fact, hoping that they would want to be saved. Yeah. So that's kind of just backing up what you just said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> how many do I, how many people around the table uh, came to Shiloh from a Catholic background? Yeah, there's always plenty in this church. I think it's <laughs> I, I think tried, it's kind of cool. I tried to be Catholic. I okay, yeah. but some of you were born Catholic, raised in a Catholic home like I was, and now you're here. Um, 
Does that mean that being Catholic is a bad thing or anything else? No, but it means that at some point you didn't necessarily reject the faith of your your uh, birth, but you said, I'm looking for more. And I think that's the way that, that Paul would explain the, the conversion of the Jews is to say, it's not that they have rejected their Jewishness. In fact, we'll see that as you read in like... Um, uh, it's in more of Romans, but it's also in Ephesians and in Galatians. But, but basically what he says later on is, is that it's not necessary to be circumcised to be a Christian, but it is necessary for Jews to accept Christ to be Christians. Like they can't, Judaism doesn't automatically roll you forward to Christianity, but you don't have to go back and become a Jew and then become a Christian so, you know, he's saying Jesus kind of created a new uh, ground level for what it means to be part of, of the family of God. Is, is that if you're Jewish, you got to come up to this point, And if you're a Gentile, you got to come over to this point, you know. But nobody has to become Jewish first. And so what he's trying to say, you know, basically is, is that... that um, in order to catch it, I guess the way you could put this is it's like a dragnet. He's decided that if he can't catch the Jews with his fishing rod, he's going to catch them with his dragnet. And that means he'll catch Jews and Gentiles every time he sweeps with the net. That yeah. That's kind of what he's saying. Yeah. Does that work? That's what I thought. So, you know. Father would have him cast all of his nets and every which way he could catch the Catch all the people and. Now, is there anybody at the table who also heard dun dun dun, dun <laughs> when I said dragnet? <laughs> I, just, I just thought maybe there might be others. Well, we didn't get through all the questions. Are there any uh, questions, observations, anything you'd like to share tonight? No, no class next week. Two weeks from now, you'll be gone. Correct. So next week is fall break. So no TGIW. And then um, the following two weeks, it's George in this room. And you don't have to worry about recording it. It's It'll be okay. Um, although I have to say my mother really appreciates the new microphones. <laughs> so... Um, Mom doesn't get much entertainment anymore, so you know she listens to me. Cause, <laughs> sorry, mom, I'm just kidding. Everybody, say hi to Dan's mom. Hi, Dan's mom. Yep, you're one of us. Okay, George, you want to pray us out of here? Well, this is typically where I'm at a family reunion. I thank the Lord for my brother and turn it over to him. <laughs> I said, George, will you pray? Yes. Thank, thank you, Lord, for my brother Robbie. The first, Almighty God, the first thing I want to pray is that everyone here got the message that you meant for us to have today. Dear loving Father, through, your, through the name of our Lord Jesus, thank you for your promise that if we call on you, you will hear and answer us. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. You have revealed yourself through the Bible study that we have had. Continue speaking to us so that we can know your will. In Jesus' name, we pray and believe. Amen. 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 Thank you, George. Great prayer. Well, see you, everybody. I hope.